You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Romans chapter 6, there's probably at least uh, 12 sermons that could probably be preached from this chapter alone, and we're going to try to cover these 23 verses all today, so I'm going to intentionally try to not complicate matters uh, because there's a lot of deep material in this chapter, um, and if we're not careful, we will try to cram too much into today to where we walk away with nothing. And so I want to essentially give you the main points to take away from this chapter with the understanding that to grasp this chapter uh, requires a a lot of attention and a lot of further study that I would invite you to. Uh, Looking back over some of my discipleship material, there was at least 12 sermons that I preached that were directly related to uh, material in this chapter. So in no way can we possibly hope to cover the depth of what Paul communicates in this chapter today based on just how we're handling the book of Romans, but it does invite you the opportunity to continue this study further on your own. But we are going to read the entire chapter together to set the context for what God wants to teach us today. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not? Are we uh, to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would teach us through your word, help us to grasp uh, what you want us to understand today. Father, I pray that you would lead us continually into a victorious life over sin for those of us that have been saved. Father, for those who continue to be enslaved to sin, Father, I pray that you would rescue them even this morning through the power of the gospel, uh, that you would transform their minds, their thinking. God, help them to see that good works can never earn your favor and that it's only through the shed blood of Christ, his perfect life, and his resurrection that they can hope to one day Stand in your presence has been promised to those that are saved. God, I pray that you would justify those this morning that need to be justified. God, that you would continue to sanctify us that need to be sanctified still. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been working through the book of Romans and highlighting the key aspects of each chapter. Romans chapter 1, Paul completely shows us how the, the immoral bad person is guilty before God, that he's accountable for his sin. He knows what's wrong. He knows his conscience tells him one thing. He disobeys that conscience. He chooses to sin. He's guilty before God. Romans 2 shows us that the good person, the guy who wants to judge others for their sin and approve of himself and his good works is guilty before God too, that he shows he has an understanding of right and wrong. He still chooses to do wrong. Paul also shows that the religious person, the person who comes to church, the person who grew up uh, in a Christian family, who reads his Bible and prays and, and tries to do these external things, that he's guilty before God. That it's without the blood of Christ, according to Romans four, that, or Romans 3, without the, uh, the work of Christ, without the, the shed blood of Christ, without that, we can never hope to have God's wrath satisfied. And so Paul shows us in Romans 3 that while everybody's guilty, It's through Christ that everyone can be saved um, and that that is available through the work of Christ, not by works, not by us earning it, but by God graciously giving it to us. In Romans chapter 4, we see an example of how this works through the life of Abraham. And Abraham shows us that he was justified before he ever did anything good, before he ever did any type of religious ceremony. Uh, God made him right uh, through that declaration in his standing. And then God continued to work in his life to, uh, to sanctify him. And we're going to see today what that means. And then last week, Romans chapter 5, we, we saw our connection both to Adam in our old life. So Adam and Eve, Adam sins in the garden. We're guilty because of Adam's sin. It affects everything about creation. We're born sinful. Uh, and so we do sinful things because of a sin nature that we are born into this world with. But through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he comes and through his righteous work, through his perfection, his perfect life, we can become perfect. Um, Both in our account before God, that justification where God declares us righteous because he moves Christ's righteousness to our account. But then also practically as God begins to work in our life to make us more like Christ. And then one day when Jesus comes back, those of us that are believers, we will be made perfect in God's eyes. Which brings us to Romans chapter 6. How does that practically look moving forward? Romans chapter 6, if we're kind of titling this chapter, it's where we're seen to be dead to sin and enslaved to God. 
dead to sin and enslaved to God. What we find here in Romans chapter 6, we've seen up to this point that the gospel forgives us, but we also now see in Romans chapter 6 that the gospel delivers us. God returns us to our rightful place in creation as his servant image bearers who are tasked with worshiping him. So up to this point, we've seen God saving us from the penalty of sin. He takes that guilt away. He justifies us. He declares us righteous, declares us in right standing with the law. But now we're going to see that God saves us. God rescues us from the presence of sin, from the power of sin in our life. Ultimately, the theme of Romans chapter 6 is you can't enjoy sin and salvation. You have to declare which one is most important to you. You have to declare which one you want to be. You can't enjoy both. Christ teaches us this. You can't serve two masters, right? Um, a lot of you guys know that exploring the possibility of working at Trinity. There's going to come a point and has to decide who his employer is going to be. Because he can't go to both jobs every day, right? Like he can't. He can't, he can't say I'm going to work this job and work this job. He can't do that. None of us could do that. We, we have responsibilities and we serve individual employers. You can't work two jobs. Um, the theme of Romans chapter 6 is you can't serve sin and Christ. It, it doesn't mesh. There's a declaration that happens. I'm doing this. I'm not going to, to serve in this way any longer. And Paul breaks that down for us in Romans chapter 6. What we find here is that the mortal blow to our old sinful self has been dealt. It will not dominate and win. Term to know there in your notes, sanctification. It's the progressive work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. It's the progressive work of the Holy Spirit and the believer that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. The progressive work of the Holy Spirit and the believer that makes us more and or that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. We've been declared righteous. Sanctification is now the working out to where we start to become righteous. We start to become what God wants us to be. That culminates in glorification one day where God will completely resurrect us to be righteous. Now, sanctification at its core, it means to be set apart. Um, and so there's some different aspects of sanctification. Positionally, we've already been set apart from hell to eternal life. If you're a believer this morning, you have positionally been set apart from hell to eternal life. Progressively now, you're being set apart from sin to obedience. That's what's happening in all of us that are believers right now. We are in the process of being set apart from sin to obedience. And then eventually one day, our final sanctification means we will be set apart from sin, from the presence of sin to the presence of God. Right now, we don't enjoy that yet. Sin is still uh, an active presence in our life. It's something that we deal with daily. And until Christ returns, we will have that presence of sin to deal with. But when Jesus comes back, sin will be completely removed from our life. What we find here in chapter uh, 6 is that it's built around two questions. 
You'll see in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The second question comes later in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? The question there is from two perspectives. There's the immature perspective of can I continue to sin since God's so forgiving? There's that person who's, who maybe asked that question. Then there's the other person who says, if we share this gospel, people are going to continue to sin, right? So you've got the one person who says, can we still sin Like, because God's so forgiving? And then you have the person who says, should we really share this? Because if we do, people are going to keep sinning. Like, if, it, if it's absent from works, if, if, if works don't save us, and we tell people they can be saved by faith, then what's going to prevent them from sinning? So you, you might have had the, the pharisaical approach, hey, we've got to keep preaching law or else people are going to run wild. And then you have the other people saying, can we run wild? Like, God's so forgiving. We love this God of love and forgiveness. Does that mean we can keep living the way that we want to? And Paul's going to address those questions here in Romans chapter 6. And it's basically broken up into two sections where he answers those two questions. This idea of doing what you want after you're saved, it's labeled antinomianism. It means anti-law. It's a bad thought process based on not knowing the gospel correctly. Paul's essentially coming off the thought that if Abraham is saved by faith, what keeps him from sinning? I had one commentator who, who said, if we're presenting the gospel correctly, it ought to lead to these type of questions about antinomianism. He says, if, if people aren't asking these questions about your gospel presentation, you're probably including the law too much in your gospel presentation. That's something to kind of chew on and think about there. He's saying that Paul doesn't retract and say, oh, yeah, I was teaching gospel by, by faith, and, and this is how we're saved, we trust in Christ, but yeah, the law is definitely mixed in there. Paul doesn't backtrack at all. He says, yeah, let me correct what you're thinking there. But yeah, you're right. Salvation is by faith, absent from works. Works will come after salvation. So we're not saved by our works. But one commentator said, if we're presenting the gospel correctly, it ought to lead to these questions. Uh, because salvation is not based on our performance. If a Christian is producing more and more sin, what we're going to see here in Romans chapter 6, then the person is probably not a Christian. If a Christian is continuing to produce more and more sin, then that person has no claim to Christianity, according to Romans chapter 6. If they've really been set free from sin, if they've died to sin, if they've been enslaved to God now, enslaved to righteousness, they would be the extreme exception to the rule for sin to continue in their life and them still be considered a Christian. What we're going to see today, the truth is, is that we've been crucified with Christ. We've been set free from sin, the dominion of sin in our life, and that's to translate practically into our daily life. All right, so again, without trying to overcomplicate matters, let's look at two ideas here. Roman numeral one, the gospel unites us to Christ. The gospel unites us to Christ. We see this in verses 1 through 14. The question that's asked here, shall I continue in habitual sin so that God's grace may abound? That's kind of the idea there in that first question. Shall I continue in habitual sin? Meaning, 
Can I continue to live a blatant, sinful lifestyle? Because remember, previously Paul has said, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. So everywhere we see sin, God is greater than that sin, and his grace is greater than that sin, and he can save anyone despite their sin. So the question then is, well, if God's so gracious, can I continue to be that way? Can I continue to live a sinful lifestyle so that God can be more gracious to, to forgive me for those sins. And Paul says, no, we are dead to sin. We are dead to sin. What does it mean for us to be dead to sin and united with Christ? That's the argument that Paul sets forth here in verses 1 through 14, that we are dead to sin because we are united with Christ. And this isn't just unique to Romans. It's also seen in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do we understand this concept of being dead to sin when every single one of us has probably already sinned this morning? How can we, how can we claim to be dead to sin if we're still sinning? What does it mean to be dead to sin? So it's important that we have a right understanding of what that term means, what that idea means um, so we can better understand what we're supposed to be moving forward if we really are dead to sin. A couple things that I've got in my notes here. First of all, it means that we've been set free from it. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, it's interesting to note that that, uh, that word in the original Greek, set free, is the word justified. It's the word justified. So technically, we could read it as for one who has died has been justified from sin. So when we say we've been set free from it, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We have been justified from sin. That sin has been taken away from us. It's not to our account anymore. Meaning that when God sees us, he does not see the sin if we're Christians. He sees Christ's perfection. So we've been justified from it. We've been set free from the penalty of it. Now, we still experience the earthly consequences at times from those choices, but eternally, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. Next, we are not able to continue in the same pattern of sin as before. We're not able to continue in the same pattern of sin as before. First John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He can not keep on sinning. It's not he should not keep on sinning. He ought not keep on sinning. He cannot keep on sinning because the Holy Spirit indwells him now. Now this is where we really start to separate and divide here because there are people who claim to be Christians that now show themselves not to be Christians because they continue in the same pattern of sin that they were living in before. Or they're potentially more sinful now than they were before they claimed Christ. Maybe they've grown up more now and they're producing more and more sin. And they're showing themselves to be not dead to it. It's, it's divisive here because every one of us knows stories of somebody who's living in sin, habitual sin, and claiming to be a Christian. And Romans 6 doesn't allow it. 
It doesn't allow us to continue in the same pattern of sin. It says that we're free from being dominated by it. There's no more power over our life. Next, we've died to the old way of life. It means that we're dead to the old way. We're no longer united to Adam. We're no longer united to Adam. Our old way of thinking is dead now. Now let's make sure we're clear on this. We're not saying that when somebody gets saved, all of a sudden they're sanctified the next day. No more sin. I'm, I'm, I'm so righteous and holy. We're not saying that. We are saying that when somebody is saved, there is a dramatic difference in their attitude now towards their sin. You may not see that immediately in their actions. You, you will see it over a course of time. There is a steady progression where we become less and less sinful, more and more like Christ. But there is an immediate attitude change about sin. And if there isn't, then the gospel hasn't penetrated that person's heart. There's now a desire to fight sin. There's now a desire to obey Christ that wasn't there before. At least not in the context of the gospel. There may have been a a desire to be moral. There may have been a desire to do good things to earn God's favor. But there hasn't been a desire to fight every corner of their life that contains sin. There hasn't been a desire to obey Christ. There's been a desire to maybe obey law, to obey rules, but not to obey an individual that calls for everything, that calls for all aspects of your life. That's an attitude change that happens when we're dead to sin. We're no longer connected to Adam. We're now connected to Christ. We think like Christ, not like Adam. We're dead to the love and ruling power of sin. We're set free from the downward spiral of Romans chapter 1. Remember in Romans chapter 1, we see the pattern that mankind just gets more and more and more and more sinful. God gives him over to his debased mind and he gets worse and worse and worse and worse. There's the, the picture there of mankind in general, but I think mankind individually too. We're just given over to our sin and we become more and more sinful. And then Christ steps in and reverses that spiraling. To now, sanctification is we're spiraling to righteousness. We're not spiraling downward anymore like Romans 1 describes mankind. We're now spiraling upward to Christ. We're becoming more and more like Christ, more and more righteous. That's what it means to be dead to sin. We're now responsible for the sinful choices we make that go against our new nature. We can't claim that, well, I do this because I've got a sin nature. That's what the lost person has a right to claim. I do sinful things because I'm a sinner. Because I'm sinful. For the Christian now, we can't say this is who I am because we're something new now. It's a different level of responsibility. I am resisting the new nature that's been given to me. I'm acting contrary to what I am. And and we know that this is true because of what 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us. That he gives us a way to escape. He gives us a way to escape our temptation. He doesn't bring stuff upon us that we can't resist. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you're a Christian, you have a new nature 
You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You can be responsible for your sinful choices. You can resist sin. We've been crucified in our relationship to sin so that ultimately its presence can be removed completely one day when Christ returns. Now again, we're not saying that you're going to attain a level of perfection before Jesus comes back. But we are saying that progressively less and less sin should be happening in your life. That's why I challenged you guys with all the sanctification talk at the beginning of this year. Are we going to be more like Christ at the end of this 365-day period? Because we should be. Because that's the promise that we're given in Scripture, that we should be progressively seeing sin decrease in our life. It's going to look different in everybody's life, and it's going to be faster for some than others. Remember, we're all justified the same. We're all right with God if we're Christians. But some of us are more sinful than others because our sanctification happens at different paces as the Holy Spirit's working in and through us. Now, this is where there's a lot of argument today that would, in my mind, contradict what we're reading in Romans chapter 6. Because this is where a lot of people, and I deal with this with parents at school all the time. My kid can't help this. My kid has been diagnosed with something that he can't not act like this. Now, I don't, I don't fully understand enough medically to say definitively certain things on this topic. But I want to caution anybody and everybody to use language that would imply enslavement and ensnarement to a particular activity that we are told we are rescued from if we are Christians. If you can't help it, if you can't help but be this, it contradicts what Romans 6 is saying. Uh, the, the, the level of addiction that some people want to talk about, well, well, I'm addicted to this. Hebrews says, until you've resisted to the point of bloodshed, you haven't resisted enough. That there's a point to where you have got to continue to resist to where it may kill you to resist more. And I know that there are certain things that when people get weaned off of, it has all kinds of physical issues potentially. But I can tell you, I've never been called to anybody's house in this room that's fighting sin because they're trying to get sin out of their life and it's about to kill them. None of us have resisted sin in such a way that it's leading to medical complications. So that is an, ex- a, 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 an exception to the rule when we're talking about getting sin out of our life. There's a responsibility that we have to, to live out the truth that's contained here in Romans chapter 6. That we are no longer to be dominated by sin. And we can help it. And, we, and we're not so driven to it that we can't find victory over it. Because that type of language is not consistent with Christianity. It's not consistent with what Paul's laying out here in Romans chapter 6. And again, any of those cases would be the exception to the rule if we're going to say that, yeah, there are some cases where maybe this is true from a medical standpoint. But the amount of people that want to claim it just in my small context at Trinity, it's moved beyond the exception to the rule. And more than likely what we're dealing with is your child might not be a Christian. They might be enslaved to this type of behavior, but it's because they're enslaved to their sin nature and they've never been rescued from it. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we been rescued from it? Are we dead to sin? Because if we are, then we, we can escape temptation and we can resist 
even to the point of bloodshed if necessary. Three things from this section, 1 through 14, that that we take away from in our responsibility. First, we must know our relationship to sin. We must know our relationship to sin. Now, don't just dismiss this because it sounds easy. Verse 3, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So Paul recognizes the question here. There's some misunderstanding about the gospel that would maybe suggest that we can continue to live in sin. And Paul attacks their knowledge. He says, you don't know enough. There's a a knowledge deficiency here that needs to be fixed. I challenged you last week. It's not an agreeing issue. Okay? So I hope most everybody's going to agree with everything they hear this morning. You guys are good at agreeing. But that has to translate into you knowing it. And I challenged you last week. If you can't have a, a conversation about justification that lasts longer than 15 minutes, you don't understand justification like you need to. I can get up here and preach for five weeks on justification, and you can say, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that, and call it knowing it. But you agree with it. You know it when you can carry on a conversation and explain it to somebody. And Paul says, you have to know this. If you're going to find victory over sin in your life, you have to know it. Not just agree with truth, but know truth for yourself. We must understand the truth of what has happened to us in Christ so that we can place our trust in it. That's how our faith increases. Faith increases when we have more knowledge and truth to trust in. So we have to know what's really happened to us in sin through Christ if we're going to find victory over it. Paul says we're dead to it. We were united with Christ in his death. Now, it talks a lot about baptism here. It's not talking about what we do here at Sovereign Hope where we baptize somebody into water. What he's describing here is the spiritual reality that we try to picture when we dunk somebody in water. Okay, so he's not saying that through the physical act of baptism, you die to sin. When you become a Christian, you put your faith in Christ, that all happens. You're united to Christ in his death. You're raised in newness of life. You're a new person. We show the church that through the picture of baptism. Secondly, we must reckon truth to our hearts. So we have to know truth, and we have to reckon it to our hearts. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider, I'm using the word reckon because a lot of uh, theological books are going to use that, so I want you to pick up on that if you're reading on this topic in another, another venue. We have to reckon it to be true. We have to impute it to be true. It's the same idea there where we, we put it to the account. We treat it as though it is such. We treat it as though it is true in our life. We don't just abstractly know that we're dead to sin. We take that knowledge and say, this is true for me. This is reality for me. I'm dead to this. I don't have to be this person anymore. We must fight to live like the resurrected person we are and are becoming. We must apply the truth we know. We must believe it. So it's we need, to, we need the truth to know it. We need to know what Scripture says about how we relate to sin. And then we've got to believe it to be true for us individually. <coughs> We're to treat ourselves as dead to sin. 
We treat our old relationship to sin as though it's no longer there. It's, uh, it's like an old girlfriend when you get married. There are things that are no longer appropriate with a previous relationship. The best advice you could get is to treat that person as though they are dead. That they are completely gone from your life. If you want to have a successful marriage, your previous relationships are gone. They are done. They, they have passed away kind of thing. That's the idea there. We treat it as though it's no longer there anymore. Uh, we treat ourselves as though we are dead to sin because Scripture tells us that we are. There, there's still a temptation there. There's still flesh that we're going to wrestle with, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But there's a, a reckoning that has to happen there, that this relationship is done with. It is over with. I'm not going back to it anymore. Now, depending on the level of that relationship, there may be people that have to deal with some of the, the lingering issues that come from that attachment after marriage, kind of that picture that we still battle sin, but that relationship has been severed. That relationship's been severed, and it needs to get cleaned up more and more spiritually as we submit to Christ. Then the third aspect here is we must yield ourselves to righteousness. So we have to know what Scripture says, we have to believe it to be true for us, and we have to yield ourselves to it, specifically to righteousness. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's a willful choice of obedience. You are responsible. Not your sin nature now. You're responsible for the choices that you're making. We must practically put to death what is already dead and dying in our life. So while sin has been killed, there's still the practical aspect that we are to be killing sin daily in our life. That the fatal blow has been dealt, but we know even if, um, if you're working in the yard and you, and you see a snake that happens to be a poisonous snake, right? You can kill the snake, but that doesn't remove the danger of it. It doesn't remove the danger of it. Um, it, it still has the lethal ability to harm you. That's why like a, a good mom or dad will kill it and then we'll dispose of it completely to where there's no contact for the child because it still has the venom there. It still has the ability to kill you, potentially, if it's that type of snake. So it's not something that, that just completely is now unharmful to us, even though that fatal blow has been dealt to it. We must now use our bodies as weapons of righteousness rather than as weapons of destruction. That's the better translation there for instruments. Instruments, you kind of picture yourself in the band room and you're playing all these uh, instruments. Um, that's not the picture here. It's the picture of an armory uh, and weapons that can be used for good or bad. Paul says, don't give your weapons away anymore. Don't give your weapons to the enemy so that the enemy can use them for destruction. Think about that. As a believer, every time we yield to sin, we are giving ourselves to the enemy so that destruction can happen. And rarely is there a sin that we can engage in that doesn't directly affect other people. Even if we feel like, oh, I'm doing this in my privacy, on my own, this isn't affecting anybody else. What it's creating inside of you will necessarily affect somebody. 
even if it's not immediate, down the road. Our sin directly affects those that are around us. So every time we yield to sin, we're saying, enemy, use me for destruction. Use my fleshly body. That's a lot of the context in Scripture, that we're to, to not yield our members, our body parts to the enemy to be used for destruction, whether that's our mouths, our hands, our feet, our sexual organs. We can't allow the enemy to use these for destruction. We're told to control ourselves, to submit ourselves to God for righteousness. We must fight to keep our sinful flesh under control. 1 Corinthians 9.27 But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, I have to control myself. Even as the greatest church planner the world may ever know, he says, there are things that I have to do to make sure that my body does not disqualify me. And that's not to say that our bodies in and of themselves are sinful. Um, That can lead us down to all kinds of, of false doctrines and false understandings. But this is how sin acts itself out a lot of times in our life, through our bodies. Paul says, I have to control myself. Galatians 5, 24 through 25 And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. John Piper says we have a a responsibility to cultivate enmity with our sin. He says you're not prone to kill things that are your friends. He says you don't kill things that you like. Uh, nobody goes out and wants to kill their friend. He says, so as long as sin is allowed to maintain a friendly type perspective in your life, you'll never be inclined to get rid of it. He says, you have to develop enmity with your sin if you're ever going to hope to kill it and get it out of your life. You have to understand that it's what put Christ on the cross, that it affects relationships negatively in your life, that ultimately it leads to death and destruction. Paul goes on to say later that there's no fruit, no positive fruit that comes from our sin. John Piper's challenge is we have to spend some time meditating on the fact that these actions aren't just wrong because we've been taught that they're wrong, that they're wrong at their core for specific reasons. God's commands are always good. God's laws are always good for us. They're always designed for the good of creation. We have to create enmity with the actions, the sinful actions that are in our life if we want to get rid of them. Lastly, we must constantly make ourselves available for righteous purposes. We have to make ourselves available for righteous purposes. So the way we combat sin is we replace it with things that are good. We fight for the good. So if I'm, if I'm talking with, with an individual who's struggling with lust, maybe pornography, While it's not the end-all answer, part of the counsel that I'm going to give is you have rightful sexual desires that need to be exercised rightly. So in the midst of us fighting this sin, we've also got to get to the point where you're using this rightly, which means we've got to take steps to where you are the type of individual that can be married, that can lead a family if it's a male, so that these desires can be used for righteous purposes and not sinful purposes. Now, again, marriage isn't the answer to lust and pornography. It doesn't fix everything. But it's an understanding that there are ways to use our bodies wrongfully, and there's ways to use it righteously, the way that God designed it. 
and, and, and we have the responsibility to do both. We don't submit ourselves for unrighteousness. We submit our, our members as weapons for righteousness. The implication here is if we know, reckon, and yield, sin will not dominate us. If we know, reckon, and yield, sin will not dominate us. See, Romans 6.14 is not a command, it's a promise. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So if we're faithfully pursuing rightful knowledge, what Scripture teaches us about our relationship to sin, if we're rightfully putting our belief and trust in that knowledge, and then if we're rightfully and and faithfully and responsibly not submitting ourselves to sin, not making provision for the flesh, instead using our bodies, using our minds, using what we are for rightful purposes, sin will not dominate us. It cannot have dominion over us because we've been set free from it. We've died to it. All right, the last section here, and this is going to go faster. The gospel enslaves us to Christ. So the gospel unites us to Christ. We're united in his death. That's why the relationship with sin has been severed. But we're now enslaved to Christ. And Paul admits this isn't a perfect picture. It's not the best illustration. Verse 19, he says, I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. I'm trying to help you understand deep spiritual perspective in in human terms. And so he says it's not a perfect illustration. But it does give us an idea of, of, of the picture that we're to have in our sanctification, that we're now enslaved to Christ. The question that's asked here, previously it was, can I continue in habitual sin? Can I continue in a pattern of lifestyle? Paul says, no, that's completely inconsistent with Christianity. You've been severed from sin, uh, so, so you don't continue in it. The next question is a little bit more uh, tame in the sense of, shall I continue in single acts of sin? since God will graciously forgive me. Meaning, okay, I'm not going to do this all the time. I'm not going to be known for this. But from time to time, I'd like to come back and revisit it. I'd like to come back and just check in. Is that an okay perspective, since God will forgive me for that sin? Okay, I've broken off with my old girlfriend, but I'd like to check in with her once a year just to see how things are going, maybe meet up for coffee. Is that okay? My wife's very forgiving. She, she understands my, my faults. Surely she'll look past the fact that the 364 days I was with her, this day I just like to check in with her, make sure she's doing okay. That's the question here. Is it okay for me to revisit sin periodically? I'm not going to live in it habitually. I'm not going to be the guy that's known for this. But from time to time, I'd like to entertain it. I'd like to jump back in there uh, just to revisit old times, check in with old friends kind of thing. Paul says, no, you're not a slave to it any longer. He says, you're not a slave to it any longer. What's it mean to be enslaved to Christ? What's it mean to be enslaved to Christ? Paul tells us that one's obedience to a master determines one's enslavement. One's obedience to a master determines one's enslavement. He says, verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, 
either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He says, if you entertain this idea, you open yourself up to being enslaved once again. He says, you, you, don't have, you don't get to just pick and choose when you commit this sin. You don't have the freedom to go back and then have the freedom to come back. He says, you go back, you may not come back. You go back into this, you're, you're saying, I want this. It's inconsistent with what we said at the gospel. When we responded to the gospel, the gospel demanded a change in allegiance. When we came to Christ, we willingly submitted to him as our new master. Verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says it's inconsistent with what you said when you came to Christ. The reason you can't go back and and tolerate going back, the reason you can't say, hey, it's okay to have this amount of sin in your life. Now, again, we all have sin. We all make wrong choices. So we're not saying that you get to the point where you don't. What we're saying is you can't be okay with those sinful choices because it's inconsistent with the gospel. To continue in sin is to negate what we said when coming to Christ. Remember, when we come to Christ, we confess him as Lord. That's what Paul tells us later on in Romans. If you want to be saved, you have to confess him as Lord. You confess him as your new master. To go back to the old master is inconsistent with the gospel. By obeying the gospel, we are set free from our slavery to sin to now serve Christ. Exodus seven sixteen. God tells Moses that he's going to, to ask Pharaoh, let my people go. They're enslaved to Egypt, but the goal was never to set Israel free to go do whatever they wanted to. Exodus seven sixteen says, you set my people free so they can come serve me. So the enslavement was going to change. You're enslaved to Egypt and to Pharaoh. We're setting you free from that so you can come be enslaved to me. So you can be my servants. That's what we were created for. And God's rescuing us back to that original purpose of creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And the last thing there in your notes, one's enslavement to a master determines one's destiny. So who we obey determines who we're enslaved to. So if we're constantly being obedient to sin, we have to ask ourselves, are we still enslaved to sin? And then when we're enslaved to a master, it determines our destiny. Verse 20 and 21 For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Our past experience is that we were headed towards death with no real fruit in our life. We were free from righteousness, meaning We were free from any desire to be righteous, and we were free from the ability to be righteous. So Paul says, before you were saved, you didn't have obligations to righteousness because you didn't have a desire for it. But now, if we're Christians, our present experience, we're set free to holiness and life with the future eternal experience of glory. We're free to produce righteousness. So the implication here is if we enslave ourselves to sin, 
we will be paid. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So if we want to answer the questions with, hey, I'm going to continue to habitually be a sinner. I'm going to continue to go back sinful acts of sin. You know, I'm enslaving myself to sin. Paul says that leads to death. You get paid. You earned something. You earned death. If we enslave ourselves to Christ, we will receive the gift of life. There's a lot of truth in verse 23. It's one that we've, for some of us, we memorized when we were kids. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, living for Christ, we don't get paid eternal life. God's not, God doesn't owe us eternal life. We earn, we earn death by our sin. We don't earn eternal life with our obedience. At the end of our life, when we've been enslaved to Christ, it's still a free gift. It's still something that Christ earned on our behalf. So here's the application for us. I'm going to give you three things. But first of all, we need to know the truth of sanctification, reckon it to be true for us, and faithfully yield to righteousness. That's what we've been saying all through this passage. But there's three areas for you to kind of focus on. First of all, forget your past sin. Be mindful of your present sin. And prepare to avoid future sin. Be mindful of your present sin. Prepare to avoid future sin. While forgetting our past sin. We don't need to despair about things we've done in the past. God's forgiven those. Let's move past them. We need to be mindful of things that we're currently doing, things that are currently being tolerated in our life, and we need to fight against them. We also need to make preparations for potential future stumbling blocks. Uh, We prepare for future sin by taking steps now to guard against those things. We don't make provision for the flesh. Now, in fighting sin, and I've been using this in some of the meetings that I've been having with people in our church there's an initial breaking point that has to happen with sin. When we decide, okay, this is sinful in my life, i got to get rid of it. There's an immediate breaking point. Where we have to break off all ties to it and break off all opportunities for it. But there's also a level where we have to get to where there's some sustainability to that. So in, in regards to pornography, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm struggling with this, then initially we're going to cut off all aspects to it especially according to how serious it is. So it may be no computers, no smartphones, no TV, no access to it. we got to get it out of your life completely. But that doesn't equal victory. So removing the opportunity for the flesh does not equal victory over sin. All it means is that I've kept myself from being able to get it. But you will find a way to get it until, unless the heart is changed. So there's that, that concept of like a binge diet where, okay, I'm going to get rid of carbs completely because I want to lose, lose weight and lose it fast. But people go on diets that a lot of times aren't sustainable, right? Like they can't, they can't keep up with that pace. And so they have to figure out how to let food back into their life and eat responsibly. You can't just go on certain diets and keep it going for the rest of your life. So as we fight sin, there's an initial, I got to get this out of my life. But then I've got to attack the heart because there's some things that are just a necessary part of life that have to be there. And we have to figure out how to use them responsibly without sinning. 
So there's this concept where we have to, to break it off, but then we have to fight our hearts to avoid that future, that future potential sin if we're going to sustain that pace. Next, continually renew your mind and seek accountability. As we're, as we're pursuing sanctification and we're fighting sin, we're dead to it, but it's still there in our life, we've got to continually renew our mind so that we're knowing, so that we're reckoning correctly, and we have to seek accountability. Hebrews 3.13 talks about the responsibility we have in our church to speak truth to each other so that we don't become hardened to our sin. We have to renew our minds. Philippians 4.8 talks about us focusing on, on specific things that are good and true. We have to fight the lies that sin tell us. And then lastly, be careful about majoring on the minors in sanctification. What do I mean by that? Don't walk away today saying, it's probably good for some people, but I'm doing pretty good in my sanctification. Don't major on the minors. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus addresses this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So we kind of talked at the very beginning of this year. What are some ways and areas that you want to be sanctified? And it can be real easy to, to major on the minors and say, well, you know, I'm doing really good in my prayer life. I'm doing really good in my Bible reading. Like I'm, I'm, I'm doing some really good things. And, and think that there's no responsibility there for you to be fighting sin. Jesus says, these are, these are all good things that you're doing. You need to be doing these things. Don't neglect these things. But don't lose sight of the fact that there are, there are places and areas that you still need a lot of sanctification in, that you need to be fighting sin in your own life. So I want to encourage you this morning, don't, don't major on the minor areas that you're seeing victory. Keep the perspective that you're not what you're supposed to be yet, that, that we're dead to sin, but we still have a, lot, a long way to go to being Christ-like. And we won't fully see that until Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, we're to fight. We're to be killing sin. We're to be putting off the old self, putting on the new self. I'm going to close with reading Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. And then we'll pray together. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul says that the Gentiles, they lived in such a way because their, their minds were darkened. Romans 6, we've been, we've been changed because there's a new attitude that's been placed in us towards our sin. We're dead to it now. We've been made alive. We have a different attitude towards sin, a desire to fight, a desire to obey. That's my encouragement to you guys from Romans chapter 6, that we would fight well as a, as a church, that we would fight together as we pursue sanctification. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We want to praise you and thank you for the truth that we've been learning together. Father, we're thankful that you have communicated to us that even in our best efforts, we cannot save ourselves through good works. Father, we're thankful that we can know that up front so we don't spend a lifetime wasting ourselves trying to earn favor with you when it's impossible. Father, we're also thankful this morning that, that you have made provision. You have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the sacrifice for us. God, we know that we have sinned and we have earned condemnation. We have earned death because of the choices that we've made. But Father, we are so thankful this morning that Christ has come to to pay that price for us. God, we're thankful for his perfect life, that he earned righteousness for us so that we can be right in your eyes. God, I'm so thankful this morning that, that salvation is available to everyone in this room that will turn to you, confess you as Lord, and submit to you as their new master. Father, I pray for those of us that are Christians this morning that are dead to sin, that we would live in that reality. God, that we would see that old relationship that's been broken off and that we would quit going back to it. God, that we would live empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we would put to death those those deeds that continue in our life. God, that we would control our bodies. We would put off the old self and put on the new. Father, I pray that we would rightfully know Scripture, we would believe it, we would yield ourselves as weapons of righteousness. God, I pray for those in this room that may not be a Christian, that may not be a believer in you, that haven't submitted their lives to you. Father, I pray that you would help them to understand their sin, their inability to fix it. God, I pray that they would see uh, those in this room that are Christians that that we're no different in the sense that we, we were just as guilty. But we've been justified. We've been declared righteous because we've put our faith and trust in Christ. And so, Father, I pray for those that, that maybe aren't believers, that you would draw them to salvation this morning, that they would put aside their attempt to be good. They would see their sin. They would place their faith and trust in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.